I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. The question we're trying to answer tonight is, what exactly, exactly is the unforgivable sin? I want to get some specificity on this as much as possible. I don't pretend to be able to answer every question, but um, what is the unforgivable sin or have I committed it is one of the most common questions that leaders get um, is in online ministries as well as pastors in, 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 in person in churches. And it comes from this passage in uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but I'll read the Mark passage, and it's Mark three twenty-eight and 29. Listen to the words of Jesus, and if you're not familiar with this, you'll understand immediately why people are alarmed and concerned about the definition of this thing. So here's Jesus speaking in Mark 3.28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. Comma. Not a period, a comma right there. And he says, and whatever blasphemies they utter. Oh, okay, that's good. Comma. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And so I understand, and I think we're rightly concerned. Like, I should be alarmed. The Lord of all things tells me there's this thing that's an unforgivable or eternal sin, and I want to know what it is. Um, it seems to be a time when the door of grace closes in, a, in an individual's life. Not, just, not globally, but in that person's life. Um, and you may have wondered, have I done this? But I think for many, they're not thinking, have I done this? And they have good reason to think they've done it. It's just like that fear of a shark when you're in the ocean. You know that there's sharks in the ocean, right? And you saw Jaws when you were a little kid, big mistake. And you get in the water and you're swimming around and, and you think, what if? What if there's a shark, right? And then seaweed brushes up against your ankle and you swim faster than you've ever swam before, right? And you get right out of the water and you never go back to the ocean again, ever, for the rest of your life. Just jacuzzis and shallow swimming pools after that. But the idea is that, that for some people, the idea of the unforgivable sin, it's kind of like the, it's a what-if fear. It's not, it's not necessarily substantial. It's not reasonable. There's no reason for them to think they have. They're just scared of what-if because it's so scary. And so I'm hoping this will help that person. But I want to get more details. I want to have like a careful Bible study on the topic. I want to understand it thoughtfully, not just pastorally. I'm hoping we can do both here. So first, before we get into the careful verse-by-verse study... Um, and for some who are clicking on the video and they're like, I, just tell me what it is, Mike. I don't want to listen to 40 minutes of you talking. Well, here it is. I'm just going to give you the summary right now. Here's my conclusions on the unforgivable sin. Then I'll show my work uh, afterwards. So here's the summary. It's not any sin you're probably thinking of. It's not any sin you're probably thinking of. It's not murder. It's not abortion. It's not a sexual sin. It's not even a repetitive sin that you've committed a bunch of times. That's not the unforgivable sin Jesus is talking about. It's not even rejecting the gospel. It's not even rejecting the gospel. And to be careful with this, but I really mean that, um, though it's related to that. It's not even persecuting the church. It's not saying blasphemous things or one blasphemous thing against the Holy Spirit. Although you might think that because I only read two verses instead of the whole passage, right? It's where a person has hardened their own heart so much that they not only reject the gospel, but in the face of overwhelming, miraculous proof, they call it satanic. Overwhelming, uncommon proof is presented to this person, and such, for instance, as Jesus being right there with them in the room, performing miracles and exorcisms right in front of you, and you have the worldview to know exactly what this means. You know that this means he is who he says he is, and so you know it, and you know it's really happening, but you just say, No, that's Satan's power. He's doing it with Satan's power. This is the height of the rejection of Christ. A self-willed delusion. That's what I think the unforgivable sin here is. It seems to be a point of no return. A self-willed, one-way trip into the land of denial and the rejection of God. It's like a final rejection of the gospel. Final for the person, not for the world. That would be my summary of what I think the unforgivable sin is. I think the fact that you trust in Christ, if you do, is evidence that you haven't done this. Right? You're not, no one's trusting in Jesus right now who has in the past committed this sin because you wouldn't trust in Christ. You'd be in the land of denial permanently. Anyone who chooses in the future to trust in Christ, that alone is evidence that they have not done this. Now, you probably have a lot of questions. Uh, for instance, can I show my work? <laughs> so can I establish this with like a verse-by-verse study through the text? And that's exactly what we're doing. This, in fact, is part 12 
of our Mark series going verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark, and we've just run into the passage in Mark about the unforgivable sin. We're going to go verse by verse, doing deep theological and apologetics kind of stuff, and this week, it's the unforgivable sin. So I'm going to do a verse by verse study through this section. At the end of the study, I'm going to answer 13, 12 or 13 questions. I think it might be 12 questions. Um, 12 questions about the unforgivable sin that I may have left hanging in the air. So we'll kind of like say, what does the text say? And then that will equip us to answer hard questions about the topic. And then I will leave you with all your other unanswered questions. <laughs> and hopefully, hopefully though, this will give you some help. That's the idea. Because um, I think that we've heard things. When I was young, I heard that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit was just anything you say that's blasphemous, uh, specifically about the Holy Spirit. And, and so you could, you could imagine how you'd feel that your salvation is very tenuous. Because you're like, well, I may have had a slip of the tongue and said something terrible about God or Jesus, you know, maybe the Father or Jesus, but as long as I didn't, about the Spirit, but what if I did? Or what if I do? You know, that, that makes it seem very, would seem very scary. But I don't think that's what's happening in the passage. Or you get non-answers with pastoral help. Pastor, did I commit the unpardonable sin? And they go, no, 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 no. There's no way. There's no way. Oh, come on. The fact that you're even asking this means you didn't do it. Then you walk away, you go, man, I feel so much better. Thank you, Pastor. Still have no idea what the unpardonable sin is, though. You know, it doesn't really equip us with the knowledge. Maybe the pastoral help and not the information. So here we go. Let's start with the context. In Mark 3, verse 21, let's try to get more info. It says, when his own people heard of this, what Jesus was doing, these crowds following Jesus, these big things Jesus was doing. When they heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, he has lost his senses, or he's crazy. Now, I'm using the NASB translation for anybody who's trying to figure out what we're, what we're in. Um, but this is actually, believe it or not, this is the beginning of the section in Mark on the unforgivable sin. And the stuff about his people is probably his family. Most likely, this is his family that's being spoken of. Um, this is a, an important part of the section on the unforgivable sin. Let's, uh, let me explain why. Um, in Mark 3, verse 21, all the way through 35, that's the section we're in today. And it's what's called a Markin sandwich. I don't think I've talked, I think we talked about Markin sandwiches, but not, not in the teaching portion. I haven't discussed Markin sandwiches. Markin sandwiches, this is like an actual term scholars use to describe something Mark does over and over again. He does it at least nine times in his gospel, it seems. Mark does this thing where he introduces a story he interrupts it with something else, and then he finishes the story. And that interruption is meant to give you some sort of interpretive framework, you know? It's setting context for you. It's almost like commentary without commentary, because it just puts it in context. Like when when uh, when the camera pans over and shows you someone's doing this, and then it goes here, so someone's doing that, and then it shows you that person again. It's like you see how these things relate to one another. So there's about nine Mark and Sandwiches. Um, now you're getting hungry, like me. Uh, for an example, I'll give you uh, Mark 5, which is probably one of the most well-known ones. This is about the healing of Jairus' daughter. In Mark 5, Jairus is like, Jesus, come heal my daughter. And Jesus is on his way to heal this 12-year-old girl. On his way there, Mark and Sandwich, he gets interrupted. And the interruption is by a woman who has had a, a bleeding problem, hemorrhaging, for 12 years. 12 years, 12-year-old little girl. Interesting. And then she, she touches the edge of his garment, she's healed. And then after that, Jesus goes on and he heals Jairus' daughter. Mark and sandwich. So the, the two end pieces are like the bread and the middle story is like the meat. There's your Mark and sandwich. In this case, the two end pieces in Mark 3 are Jesus' family comes to him and they say, he's crazy, let's get him out of here. At the end, they try to get him out of here. We'll read about that in Mark 31 through 30, uh, 331 through 35. They actually try to get him out. The meat in the middle is the story of the Sadducees or uh, the scribes, excuse me, where he tells them, warns them about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? I'll explain how it, what we do with all this information, but for now we're just saying it is, it is a Markin sandwich. So keep this in mind. Jesus' family thinks at this point in his ministry, he's crazy. That's kind of like blasphemy, right? Calling Jesus crazy. Just so you know, that is blasphemy. Like this is definitely a, a type of blasphemy. Um, it's a rejection of Jesus and it's a blasphemy against him. And this is not over. We're going to come back to the family in a minute. But before we come back to them, we're interrupted with the meat of the sandwich in verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub and by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. And you see the relation. The family goes, let's get him out of here. He's crazy. And the scribes say, he's not just crazy. He's possessed by the 
by uh, the prince of demons, Beelzebub. So there's two groups saying things about Jesus, but they're different kinds of things. What they're saying is much more extreme. But let's examine this a bit. The scribes, it says they came from Jerusalem. So they're not, he's in Capernaum area. They're not from Galilee or Capernaum. They're from further down south. They're from Jerusalem, which is like the headquarters for the Jewish people, right? When the Jerusalem scribes show up, they're going to tell you what's what. They're here to like, you know, lay down the verdict on this new Jesus character who showed up and he's teaching. And it says that the, um, the, uh, the thing that they did was called him, uh, called, not, not him, but called the source of his power, Beelzebub. Well, who's Beelzebub? Well, Beelzebub or Beelzebul, depending on your translation that you've got in the, in, uh, the New, New King James and King James Version, I believe it's Beelzebub. In the NASB, ESV, a lot of other modern versions, it's Beelzebul. These seem to just be two different names for the same uh, Philistinian, is that the right word? Philistinian deity? A Philist, yes, it's a perfect word. Write it down. Philistinian? I, I want to end it with the E-N for some reason. I'm going to go with it. So it's, a, it's, a Philist, it's probably just a Philistine deity. Anyway, the word itself, it means Lord of the Flies. At least that's what we think it means. Lord of the Flies. That's what, that's what we're first trying. You're thinking of that book you were forced to read in school. Um, Latin translations actually often, in, of the Greek manuscripts translated into Latin, they often just put Beelzebub in the passage instead of Beelzebul. They seem to be like the interchangeable names. Names get a little bit messy in, uh, in old literature. They get messy even in modern stuff. You go from one language to another, language names get a little bit weird. But it might have been intentional because Beelzebul might mean Lord of Filth. And it could have been a Jewish way of taking this Philistine deity, assigning it uh, the identity of Satan, and then calling it the Lord of Filth. They did this like with another character they hated, this guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. And they called him Antiochus Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, which uh, Epiphany means he's like the appearance of God or something like that. Epimenes. I can't remember what it means. Something like he's a scumbag of some kind. It's just like a real slur. Um, and that's what they did. They, they just kind of were slurring, slandering this character. What they seem to mean, though, is this. They mean something very different than the Philistines mean. They're not like, there's this Philistine God. He's really out there and he's really controlling Jesus. That's not what they're saying. They don't use it the way the Philistines would have used it. They use it to refer to Satan. And the whole Lord of the Flies thing, he's like in charge of the demons. That's the idea. They take the term and they use it their own, in their own fashion. And this is clear from the text. Um, Jesus actually responds by just, he knows what they mean. He goes, you think I'm casting out Satan by Satan? So clearly he's thinking, he knows what they mean. In uh, this same passage and in Matthew and in Luke, they elaborate and say by Beelzebul, the prince of demons he casts out. And the Beelzebul, the Philistine god, isn't the prince of demons. This is, this is their designation for Satan. He's this character who's in charge of all the other demonic forces. So that's what they mean by it. Um, note this. This is interesting. This means that unlike Jesus' family, they thought he was crazy, right? These guys, the scribes from Jerusalem, they know he's really casting out demons. This is a big difference. Jesus' family is not witnessing these, these miracles, it seems. So they're like, he's just crazy. Right? If I see someone do a miracle in front of me, I don't think they're crazy. I have to explain what power they had to do that miracle. So they see it. They know it's really happening. They see these casting out of the demons, and they say, he's sa- it's satanic. Now, the casting out of demons, in their worldview, if you were a first century Jew, you're not like wrestling with modern like anti-supernaturalism. You're just like, he's obviously from God. Like, this is your natural conclusion. There's no debate in your mind. You're not like, oh, well, David Hume said, you know, none of that's going on. You're just, in your worldview, you know what this means. They know what this was supposed to mean. This is meant to be proof. In Matthew 12, 28, Jesus says in this same scenario, if uh, I cast out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He's like, look, this this is evidence. And in Mark, throughout Mark so far, we're only three chapters in, but it's consistent. The miracles and exorcisms Jesus performs are there to put a stamp upon who he is. He's like, I'm proving to you who I am. And it might seem a little strange to some of our modern minds, but they would have totally got it right away. They knew exactly what these things meant. Um, So it was overwhelming proof, and they're aware of it. And it says also in verse 22, they were saying, they they came down from Jerusalem and were saying, that is a Greek word that means... um, 
that it's not a passing statement. They said, but they were continually saying. So the statement is they're going around constantly saying this. They're not just telling one person this. They're trying to ruin the reputation of Jesus. But they can't deny his miracles and his exorcisms. So they say, well, it's from the power of Satan. So this is an active, continual campaign of vilification against Jesus. Because the word in the Greek is in the imperfect. Um, And you can look that up. Most of us don't care. We just want to know what it means. So the context helps us understand the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. These people who are going to be the ones committing it, right? They have absolute proof of who Jesus is. And they're so purposely blind that they're going to call it demonic in its nature. And they know that they would never do this with anyone else. If one of their own kids was, was, had the ability to cast out demons, who was, and he was a good, good Jewish boy, they would never say, well, like, obviously it's satanic. No, this is, this is a reaction against you know, the truth of Christ with a lie. So in verse 23, we read on. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? That's the main point of the parable. We already got it right there in verse 23. But I noticed this, that Jesus, it says he called them to him. Meaning they weren't actually talking to him. They're not like, hey, Jesus, I want to talk to you. I have a problem with your ministry. here. <laughs> They're actually talking to everyone but him. They're trying to slander him. They're trying to ruin his reputation. So he calls them to himself for a confrontation. And he just starts reasoning with them. How can Satan cast out Satan? Does this really make sense? Satan's going around messing up his own thing? He's casting out his own demons? Verse 24, he explains, If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. Those are the parables here and then the application. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. A couple things to note here. One, if you want to have a good marriage or a successful business, or a fruitful ministry, you can't stand against each other in those ventures, right? Like, you, it won't work. The husband and wife, if they can't hold hands and work together, it, it's going to be ruined. Um, and so one of the things, in, like in marriage counseling, we try to do is, like, get the people back where they're both fighting for the marriage instead of just fighting each other. I mean, don't get me wrong. You, you still have all the battles with each other, but you're dealing with each other to hold together instead of to pull apart. It's just a different mentality. And so you can't stand if you're divided against yourselves. Um, Another thing to point out is that Satan is often given credit for things that he doesn't directly do. Satan's divided against Satan. Satan casting out Satan. Jesus speaks because Satan is the figurehead for that sort of demonic world. right? So whatever they do, he's given credit for it. Kind of like whatever the U.S. military does, we give credit to the president because he's the commander-in-chief. So he's getting that kind of credit. And then verse 27, Jesus goes on. He says, But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. So there's these two parables. um, And the point of them is, what you guys are saying makes no sense. Satan's casting out Satan. You don't really think this. You're, You're being, if I can put it somewhat crudely, stupid on purpose. Stupid on purpose. This is something we're all familiar with. Right, Because we have selectively done it on occasion in our lives where we're like, well, I don't know about that. And we can, we can will ourselves into strange things and weird denials. Um, but here's the question. Why is their stupid on purpose so much worse and more dangerous than someone else's? Because we've all done this to some degree at different points. I think the answer is they have increased light or increased, increased revelation. The thing they're aware of right now, so intensely, Jesus, in your presence, doing miracles that you, with your worldview, you know exactly what that means. And you're just going to say it's satanic, even though that's just totally irrational. Totally irrational. How could you conceive of these things? This is next level denial. Let me support this with scripture. The idea that when you increase the light, you increase the condemnation when people reject that light. Some people reject Jesus only knowing that much. Some people reject Jesus knowing that much. Some people reject Jesus knowing so much. And it's greater consequences for that rejection. So, um, Matthew 11, I'll read from Matthew 11, verse 20 through 24. Jesus speaking, or speaking of Jesus, it says, Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. So he's a specific negative response to cities where he did a lot of miracles. Why? Because miracles are increased light of who Christ is. 
Verse 21, he says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. You get the idea? He's like, you have this increased light, and so there's increased judgment because you rejected that light. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Increased condemnation. And Sodom is an example of God's wrathful judgment on sin. And he's saying, ah, when you reject even more light than they had, you have greater condemnation than they had. So with light comes accountability. There's another scripture I'll give you for this. It's John 15, verse 22 through 25. Jesus is talking about the nature of the condemnation people have who have rejected him when he was literally in their presence in the first century performing miracles. So we're talking about this kind of event. Similar thing is what's happening with the blasphemy of this, the Holy Spirit. He says in John 15, 22, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If, if I, hypothetical here, if I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sin. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. The increased revelation of the miracles of Christ, of the power of Christ, of the manifest evidence of who Jesus is, when that was rejected, it increased their condemnation. So increased light, increased condemnation. And this is what we're seeing in the passage here. Their, their scribes are seeing Jesus perform these miracles. They know what it means and they just deny it and they call it satanic, which is just nonsense. And so Jesus, he knows their hearts. It's not like me. Sometimes, you know, I, I think people are just being dumb on purpose, you know? And I want to tell him, like, you kind of want to be like, come on, man. Like, you're like adding purposely extra layers of thickness to your skull right now, right? Like, you, you, you know you're purposely denying reality. I don't usually say that out loud because I'm like, what if I'm wrong? Because I've been wrong before. But Jesus knows their hearts. He knows exactly what's really going on in their hearts and minds. So here's some things they had, right? They had the Old Testament, which spoke of Christ. They had Jesus doing those things right in their presence. Um, they had the miraculous element of Jesus's ministry that they knew and they believed because they're calling it satanic. They have to explain it away somehow. They also um, had John the Baptist, who was a confirmed prophet, at least for the first century people. Maybe, maybe you don't know as much about John, but they certainly did. And they had that in their presence as well. And they're just denying, denying, denying. I think there's an interesting, um, uh, on a sort of a side note, interesting story with John the Baptist. Because John the Baptist, while he knew Jesus was the Messiah, he had this season of doubt. And it was when he was in prison, and he'd been thrown in prison by Herod, and he was not going to get out. He was going to end up having his head cut off um, and die there. And he knew Jesus was the Messiah, at least he was convinced. But later on, he's, he's concerned, he's questioning, because he's not, Jesus isn't doing the things he's expecting. But John may have had some expectations, like most people of his time did, like most Jews today do, that aren't actually biblical expectations for the first coming of the Messiah. He's thinking rule and reign take over, cast off the yoke of Rome, establish the kingdom right now. He's thinking that kind of thing. And uh, Jesus is doing what scripture says, but not meeting John's expectations. So John sends a delegate, a delegation or whatever you call that, right? A group of guys over to Jesus to say, Jesus, like, are you really the one? Or was I like wrong? Should we look for someone else? I mean, think of how much doubt John must have been going through to be able to send this group. So let me read this passage. It's in Luke 7. Verses 18 through 23. And listen to how Jesus responds. Because it reinforces the idea that he wants to hold those, especially the first century people that were alive right then, he wants to hold them accountable for the light that they have received. Um, so in Luke 7, verse 18, the disciples of John reported to him about all these things. Summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord, because he's in prison, saying, are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? How confused he must have been. When the men came to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? At that very time, so when Jesus is asked this question, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits 
and he gave sight to many who were blind. So he, he answers the question with a whole bunch of miraculous works right in the moment. Then he turns and says to them, go and report to John what you have seen, all these miracles, and heard. The blind received sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Why take offense? Because of your, your misconceptions, what you expect of me isn't what I'm doing, but guess what? I'm doing just what was written. And he's quoting the scripture. He's quoting Isaiah, I believe, right there. He says, look, this is what I'm doing. So Jesus may not be who you expect, but the evidence is there that he is the one. Right? He's the expected one. He's just not doing the expected things because we have our ideas and God has what he's revealed in the scriptures. So there's this increased light. There's this increased condemnation. That's just a biblical principle. Um, Romans 1 talks about this as well. It, it's like, hey, if you, you know, if you choose not to retain the knowledge of God, your foolish heart becomes darkened, meaning you, you get even worse. We're interacting with God's revelation. We're interacting with the things he's doing in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, by the encounters that you've had with something God's doing in your life or just hearing the word, whatever it is. Even many atheists will talk about how they've had these spiritual experiences that they don't know how to explain away. And so oftentimes I've heard them say things like, well, I don't know. I mean, a lot of us have these kinds of spiritual experiences. We just, you know, you know, it happens. It's like human psychology. It just happens. I'm like, okay. Um, that's sad. That's sad. But that's part of the light that they've received and how they react is up to them. Okay, so now here we get to verse 28. So that's the background. I hope you see the context now. Now we're going to read these pass- this passage again, these two verses, three verses, I'll say. With context, it says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. That phrase, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit, that ties what they're doing to the idea of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So we already know what it is. It's whatever they were doing. It's what these scribes were doing at that exact moment. But First, since we're doing verse by verse to Mark, I got to stop and talk about this truly I say to you thing. Jesus talks like this frequently where he says, like, truly I say to you. Um, this is like Jesus' teaching style. It's totally unique in history as far as Jewish history goes or even Greek, the Greek world of his time. People just didn't talk like this. The word he uses when he says truly I say to you, the word truly is translated truly. It's not like aletheia, the normal Greek word for truth. It's amen or amen. You know, we sing it, the, especially at the end of old songs. You know, I used to always sing at my church. It's the end of a song, amen. You do that? Well, that's the word. It's the amen word. Um, in Luke, we, we get it like doubled. So it's truly, truly. It's amen, amen. I say to you. Nobody talked this way. Nobody talked this way back in that time. When we look at the Old Testament, uh, we have 23 examples of amen being used. And it's always in response like something is declared about God or about God's purposes, you know, and then they say, amen. And it's a, re- it's a response like, yes, we believe that. We affirm that's truth. Yes, it's good. It's true. It's wonderful. It's like we're saying it is true, right? Um, even at the end of Mark, we have one person who, who starts a sentence with, um, truly, this was the son of God as a centurion. But he doesn't say, amen, this was the son of God. He says, alethas, or uh, let me see how is it? Yeah, alethas is the word he uses, which is the word for truth. That's normally how they would talk. But not Jesus. Here's the point. They end, everybody else ends with amen as a way of affirming the truth of what was already said. Jesus starts with amen because whatever he says is true. In and of itself, his teaching style is uniquely different. And they would have immediately noticed and thought, who is this guy who's like, amen, I tell you. (laughs) And they're like, wait a minute. No, no, no. You say things and then we say amen if we agree. You know, and he's just like, no, it's just true. I'm just speaking truth. So it brings a new element to them saying, he teaches as one with authority. He declares these things. Um, R.T. France, in his commentary, he says, there's no parallel to Jesus' introductory use of Amen in pre-Christian Jewish literature. Still less is there any instance of a Jewish teacher using the phrase, Amen, Lego, Humen, which is truly, I say to you. It just doesn't happen. So it's Jesus' unique thing. Now there's more here though. One more thing on this. It's, I, this stuff's so neat. And you, and you get these treasures that you don't necessarily find as you're just scanning through the text. But um, 
There's only one time in the Old Testament where amen is not used as a response. It's used in a different way. It only happens one time. It's, it happens twice in one verse, I should say. And that's in Isaiah 65, 16. So let me read to you. And I'll, I'll read um, amen and then how they translate it, which is truth. I'll read both of them together so you know where it is. Isaiah 65, 16. It says, so that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of amen. Truth. By the God of amen. And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of amen, or the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. God just is the God of amen because whatever he speaks is truth. He speaks it, it's truth. Jesus in Revelation says he is the amen. He's, that's a deity claim tied in with Isaiah as well. So because what God says is true, therefore when Jesus says, truly I say to you, there's a subtle claim to authority. I should say it's a bold claim to authority and it's a subtle claim to deity, I think. Interesting stuff. Okay, so moving forward back to the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Uh, there's two contrasted things here. Jesus says two things. First, he says, all the sins and blasphemies people utter, it'll be forgiven them. And then he says, what well, won't be forgiven, but the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit won't be forgiven. We tend to like immediately gravitate to the won't be forgiven part, but we miss out on half of what Jesus said, which is all manner of sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. That's how he starts it out. We need to meditate on that for a minute. We've got to take it in full strength. This is total forgiveness. Total forgiveness. This is unlike the Old Testament law. Are you aware that under the Old Testament law, there were sins that were unforgivable? And it was a number of them. High-handed sins, sins that were just considered presumptuous or high-handed, depending on your translation. Sins that were like, you're arrogantly, defiantly, purposely doing these types of things. Um, also, blasphemy. There was no forgiveness for blasphemy. You blaspheme, you're stoned. Like, there's no forgiveness for this under the Old Testament law. There's nothing you can do. You commit murder, death penalty. God says, it, though he clings to the horns of the altar, take him off and stone him. There isn't any in the law. There's no covering for these sins. Think about this. Jesus shows up to that environment and he says, all manner of sin and all blasphemy will be forgiven. He's offering a type of forgiveness that is far beyond that which is known in the Old Testament law, though it's pictured, but it's not known. See, the law is supposed to be lesser than Christ so that we can see the magnitude of what Christ is while still seeing a picture of what Christ is. So Jesus offers a lot more, and this is consistent with um, the promise of the new covenant. The law was based on the old covenant. Christ brings the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. In Jeremiah 31, I'll just read a couple verses. Verse 31 says, Behold, Days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And he goes on in verse 34, he describes how this covenant will be. And he says, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Well, there were certain sins that were remembered under the old covenant. And God's like, this new covenant, there will be none. This is how David found forgiveness for his adultery and murder that he committed with the whole Bathsheba incident. Some people think he... um, he just performed a sacrifice. That's how he got forgiveness. But the law says there's no forgiveness for murder and adultery. You're out of luck, dude. You don't have a sacrifice for these crimes. And so when you read Psalm 51, this is the psalm that's David's like heart cry of, Lord, forgive me. I've sinned wickedly. And he, and let me just read it to you, okay? This is, this is the psalm he wrote after he committed adultery and murder. And he could look at the law and he knows, I've got no covering. I could offer a thousand bowls and it's not going to help. There's no avenue for forgiveness through the law. And so for Psalm 51, it says this. For the choir director, a Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he'd gone into Bathsheba. So we know this is specifically about the murder and adultery thing. And David's crying out for grace, but he can't appeal to the law. So feel the tension here. He says, be gracious to me, O God. According to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. And you've got to read this psalm like you're the one who's been guilty of murder and adultery. And you can feel there's no, you don't, you don't know any source of grace except just God somehow, somehow work this out, Lord. I just need grace. Verse 2, he says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. So he's just, he, it's just, he can't escape the guilt that he's feeling. I'm going to skip down to verse 14. It's all beautiful stuff, but for time. He says in verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness. That was, he, killed, he got Uriah killed to cover up his sin. And so he says, deliver me from blood guilt. 
O God, the God of my salvation, then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For, and now this will make sense, for you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. Not for these crimes, no, David. There's no sacrifice for these crimes. You are not pleased with burnt offering. Nope. Not for this crime, David. Nope, not for what you've done here. The law will not help you. Verse 17, here's the gospel. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. So David speaks really ultimately the same thing Jesus says when he tells a story about the Pharisee and the, and the tax collector. And one's beating his chest, God forgive me. And the other one's like arrogant. Like, I'm just glad I'm such a good person. Thanks God for making me amazing. You know, like... That's the the contrast. And Jesus says, the broken sinner, he goes away forgiven. The arrogant guy doesn't. David really is experiencing um, ahead of time the forgiveness that is only available through Jesus Christ. That's what he's getting in Psalm 51. So there is some forgiveness here that's available apart from the law, though it's pictured by the law. And that grace and mercy is found in full measure in Jesus. And he shows up and says, all manner of blasphemy and sin will be forgiven. So we got to take that in full, like drink that down, please. All manner of sin, totally forgiven, totally forgiven. In fact, this is what we get in Romans 3.25 talks about the relationship between those sort of unforgivable sins in the Old Testament time and the gospel of Jesus and how Jesus answers that. Romans 3.25 says, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. He was just like waiting, waiting, delaying, delaying judgment for the sins that people were committing so that he could accomplish forgiveness in Christ. Um, so even in the Old Testament, they were saved through Jesus Christ. It was all through him. So under this new covenant, though, while all sin will be forgiven, Jesus then highlights one that won't. The, the old covenant had lots of unforgivable sins. The new covenant has one. There is one thing. There's one thing you don't do. Don't blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. It's specifically called an eternal sin, which makes me think that there's no forgiveness ever. If you commit this once, that's it. That's the impression I have as I read the text. That's pretty sobering. Um, If we understand what it means, we don't get paranoid about it. We just get sober. In Matthew 12, 32, a parallel passage to the Mark passage, he says, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come. Okay, so this is this just never going to be forgiven. The ones that are going to be forgiven, it's going to be forgiven because you've come to Christ. Oh, maybe you spoke against Christ. Maybe you rebelled against Christ. But now you're forgiven because you're in Christ. But this thing, this thing's different. Um, in Hebrews, we get more information on this. Um, I'll just summarize uh, for time here. But the the book of Hebrews tells us that the law brought the death penalty and that was like a scary thing. How much more punishment will result for those who reject, trample underfoot the Son of God, right? The one who offered his blood and his sacrifice for us. The law only brought present day consequences during the life of the people. Jesus is talking about the age to come. There's an accounting that happened in the life of a a Jewish person who's under the law with humans but there's another accounting that stands before God about eternal sin, about eternal consequences. Um, so I'm saying here, there seems, to be a, there seems to be in Scripture a point of no return. There seems to be a point of no return. That, that does seem to be the case with the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Some people try to say they can repent of it later. But I think that that sort of makes me confused about what, what does Jesus mean when he says, not in this life, nor in the age to come. There's no forgiveness for this thing. It doesn't seem like it's something you, you, you're going to repent of at any point in the future. Um, but I want to add something. It's not like people are knocking on heaven's door saying, I repent, I repent, and God says, no, I don't want you. That's not what's happening here. Because the example of these guys is a self-hardened heart. And it seems, and I have other scripture I'll share with you in a second that supports this, I think. It seems that this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit isn't just an unforgivable sin. It seems as though it moves you into a state where your heart is so hard, you will never repent. Why is it never going to be forgiven? Because you will never repent. This is, this is different than saying, I'm pleading for God to forgive me. And he's like, no, that's not the case. 
They don't want it. They're rejecting God permanently is the idea. So this might relate to Hebrews 6. I personally think it probably does. So let me read Hebrews 6. This is another challenging passage. Um, But see how it maybe connects to this idea. Hebrews 6 verse 4. For in the case of those who uh, who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Now there's there's a debate in Hebrews 6. Is this talking about a saved person losing their salvation or is it talking about a person who's received full light, full revelation, and they still reject and then they're brought to a place where you, according to Hebrews 6, you can't renew them again to repentance. It's not just that they won't be forgiven. It's that they'll never repent. That's the point. There's a heart that's so hard, it's beyond repentance. It's never going to change its direction. Maybe Pharaoh is an example of this towards the end of the plagues, uh, perhaps. So this seems, of course, to rule out just about everyone who's afraid they've already committed this sin. Because you're, you're obviously having some cognizant awareness, a desire, the pull to repent. These people, they don't want to. Um, there's such a hardness of heart, it seems. Okay, now let's finish the Mark sandwich. You guys are ready for another bite. We're gonna get this is the next piece of the bread. We talked about how the family came. He's crazy. They didn't necessarily see the miracles, but they thought he's crazy. Then the scribes come, they see it, they know it's true, they willfully blind themselves, and they're in, in danger of if they have not actually committed this unforgivable sin, um, which is not just any word against the spirit, but rather the specific thing they were doing. Full revelation of, of who Christ is, fully cognizant of his power and you just choose to be willfully uh, blinded by it. Um, Now we get to the family again. In verse 31 of Mark 3, it says, Then his mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. So they they, they arrived. First they thought, he's crazy, right? And now they're they're finally there, and they send word. They can't get in because of the crowds, it seems. But they send word. Tell them we're out here. Bring Jesus out here. Remember their goal from earlier in the passage is to get him away from all these crowds and all these people. Maybe they're embarrassed. Uh, maybe they think he needs to uh, see a you know, psychiatrist or something like that. They want to get him out away from the uh, crowd. So verse 32, a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Now, Jesus knows who his mother and brothers are. But he's teaching us something about the kingdom of God versus even our family relationships. So looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. That person, they just they are his family. We our earthly families are hugely important. We're told to honor our parents. Jesus did honor his even his, even on the cross, he was making sure his mom was taken care of, right? John, take care of uh, Mary, you know, behold your mother. And so we have this he still takes care of her the whole time. In fact, his brothers, uh, James and John, both become leaders in the church. So they weren't like ostracized or kicked out at this point. But when it comes to pursuing serving the kingdom of God, there's, a, there's the highest priority is serving God and doing his will for your life above and beyond all else. So some people want to use this, this passage right here as a, a way to abandon their families to serve God. That's certainly not the case. But if your family's like, stop reading the Bible, stop praying, stop, come with us, you're just crazy with your Christianity stuff, you just keep doing it keep doing it. Uh, what choice do you have? Um, because this is the eternal family. So this is the rest of the sandwich, right? The family said he was crazy in the beginning. Then they find out that there's a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, but there's also this other blasphemy that's forgiven, which is things spoken against the Son of Man, spoken against Jesus, specifically. That's what Mark and Luke, uh, Matthew and Luke say. A word against the Son of Man. Well, that would be what his family did, right? They spoke a word against the Son of Man. He goes, that will be forgiven. So they have rejection of Jesus from two groups. Some is with full revelation, it seems. Full enough revelation. Overwhelmingly convincing revelation. Others is with partial revelation. They reject Jesus and there's still hope for them. An example of this, uh, because you might be wondering, but how extreme, like how much revelation can I reject and still be okay? Which is, by the way, I hope you're not thinking that. (laughs) This isn't in your mind. Am I still okay? Have I still got time? You know, um, That's a very scary place to be. But an example of this is Paul the Apostle. Paul 
I mean, how much did he know? He interrogated Christians. He went around persecuting believers. How many times did he hear the gospel preached? How many things did he see and know? Where Jesus is like, it's hard for you to kick against the goads, isn't it? In 1 Timothy 1.13, Paul describes what he was like. He wasn't even like Jesus' family. Oh, I just thought he was crazy. I was trying to help. He wasn't even that. He was way worse. He says, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. So Paul's an active, hateful man against Christianity, and yet he still gets saved. Even though he's persecuting, killing Christians, all that stuff, he still hasn't committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. We're talking, this is some very next level thing. And they were doing it in that text. Um, So it's connected with what they did to write them, not just a generic idea of blasphemy. And what did they do? They saw overwhelming proof, and they so rejected it that they labeled the obvious work of God as satanic and um, calling God's kingdom Satan's kingdom and just putting themselves in some kind of weird darkness there. And that seems to be either the sin or the borderline of it, right? The borderline of it. So it's not just a sin against the Holy Spirit. It's something more than that. Um, Yeah. In fact, we saw that Paul hasn't done this blasphemy against the Spirit, even though he's persecuting Christians. It's true also that most of the people that Jesus spoke to hadn't committed this sin. And I could share this with scripture. I can back this up. It was just, it seems like it was a pretty rare thing. Very rare thing. Even when Jesus was present with them doing miracles. In Acts uh, chapter 3, verse 17, it says, Paul speaking, preaching to, in Jerusalem, right after the death and resurrection of Christ at Pentecost. He's preaching. Many people were there crying for Jesus to be crucified. And now they're standing there. Listen to what he says. He says, and now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also. He doesn't just mean Pilate. He's talking about the Jewish rulers. The Jewish rulers are the ones that rejected Jesus and pushed him onto the Romans for crucifixion. And he says that the leaders, we're talking like Caiaphas, these leaders, that they acted in ignorance. So they seems, it seems they didn't have even the full revelation. It was just this rare moment when you have this incredible, abundant, full revelation and you uh, self-delude yourself. That, that's at least my interpretation of this particular sin. These scribes did it, but most of the, even the rulers didn't do it. Um, now, I'm going to run through real quick, and then we'll go to your guys' uh, some Q&A discussion here. Twelve questions that we can ask about this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and try to answer them based on what we've already covered. First question is this. Is, then this was asked by Melissa. Is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit a technical term that was like already known at the time? So when Jesus said it, maybe it's just like a Hebrew or, Jew, or Greek phrase, you know, and they just know it. And that would help us know what it means. Um, the answer is no, it's not. As, as far as I could tell, it's not a technical term. I couldn't find anybody who suggested that sort of thing, reading commentaries and whatnot. Um, now, is it a technical term used in the church later on? Does the church go, wait, watch out, that's the blasphemy of the Holy Oh, don't do it, you're doing the blasphemy. And not in the first century, it seems. I, I don't know of any. Let's put it this way. When you read the New Testament, you never see the term come up again. It, it never comes up again. If anything, some of the warnings in Hebrew, like the one-way warning of Hebrews 6, you'll, you'll never even repent again. You'll never repent if you, if you go this far. Full revelation and rejection. Um, that there's maybe a warning of the same kind of thing, but the term's not used there. What examples do we have of it in the Bible? Well, I, I can't think of too many. I mean, we just have the thing right there with these particular scribes um, and what they saw and whatnot. Um, in the Old Testament, perhaps Pharaoh is an example of this. Perhaps, maybe. He must have had some pretty extreme hardness of heart to be going after the Jews, after all that had happened uh, with the plagues. The flood may give us a sample of this because it says that God flooded the world because the thoughts of men's hearts was only evil continually. It was only wicked thoughts all the time. That's, that's how men were. They'd progressed to a degree of sinfulness where God says, and this is what's interesting, before the flood he says, my spirit will not strive with man forever. So that's even connected to rejection of the Holy Spirit because it's not just the outward miracles, it's the inner work of the Spirit working in us that we're fighting against, that we're rejecting. So we're rejecting some serious light at that point. That may be an example. I don't know. I'm just putting out possibles. Um, You might say, is it the same as apostasy? If a Christian who seems to be a Christian, right, they seem to be following Jesus and they they leave your church and they abandon Christ and they start speaking out against Christ, does that mean that they've committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? I'm going to say, I don't think so. I don't think that that's the case. Because we don't have these constant warnings in the New Testament 
that once someone turns away, they can never come back. No, in fact, we have this constant hopeful attitude. Oh, man, we hope they come back. Oh, I hope they come back. Learn not to blaspheme you know, <laughs> and do that. So we're, we're hopeful towards them. Um, Hebrews 6 does speak, it seems, of a, of a no-return situation, but it's accompanied by a list of particulars of the Holy Spirit, like all these sort of extreme experiences. And it's another debate whether that's a believer or not a believer. It could be a corporate thing about Israel. It could be a believer. I'm not personally totally settled on it. Can believers do it? Can believers commit the um, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? I will answer it this way, since this brings up a whole different big, big can of worms, right? Can a, can a believer lose their salvation at all? It's a huge question that I don't think I'm equipped to answer. But, um, but I'll say this, for sure, apparent believers can. I mean, someone who looks like a believer could do anything. I don't know your heart. I don't know what's really going on. So someone who's apparently a believer could could potentially commit this. Um, if you say a true believer can, then you're suggesting believers can lose their salvation. I'm not willing to make that statement. Uh, if you say that they can't, then you're saying they can't lose their salvation. I'm not really willing to make that statement either. I'm sorry. I wish I had more confidence about my own position on this to help people out, but I just don't. And so I will say this. Um, if it is possible, then it seems to be, again, it seems to be a point of no return. It seems to be a one-way path, this whole blasphemy of the Spirit thing. Uh, question number six, what if you've done it? This is maybe what you think. What if I've done the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? And I will say, chances are you haven't. And there's a chance that you're using the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit as an excuse to keep rebelling against God. Right? How many people do you know who are like, I don't want to go to church. God doesn't want me anyway. We all know that's not true, but some people really use that as their excuse to keep rebelling against God. Oh, well, it's too late. I committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's kind of like when you're partway through the semester in your freshman year of high school and you say, I've probably already flunked my classes anyway. And what you really mean is, I'm never doing homework again. Right? It, it becomes an excuse to sin and our hearts are so deceitful that you can never believe that sort of thing. You need to turn your heart to Christ. You need to trust in Christ. You need to repent and believe in him. And um, trying to wash your hands of your responsibility to turn to Christ because God doesn't want me is really stupid, <laughs> really dangerous. Um, can it be done today? Can the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit be done today? This is question number seven. Uh, some people say no way because you don't have Jesus in front of you doing miracles. I, I don't feel so confident about that because, I mean, you do have the Holy Spirit working in your life. There are miracles happening. There are, who knows what's going on in your specific life? The Lord knows what light each of us has received. So I, I don't, I just want to say, hmm, this is a tough one. Um, um, those who were doing it back then had a greater revelation than most of us today have at any point in our lives, I think. Um, so that's true. So I would say it wouldn't be very normal for someone to see this much light and reject it, but the Lord knows, and maybe maybe he does provide them that much light at some point. Um, the question eight was, can it be undone? And again, my personal opinion is I don't think so. I, I think that if I understand it as Jesus was saying, eternal sin, I think he's saying it's not going to be undone. won't be forgiven at any point. Uh, number nine, is it simply a rejection of the gospel? What's the answer there? Definitely not, right? Definitely, definitely not, right? I think Paul's a great example of this. It's definitely not just a rejection of the gospel. Um, how do you know you haven't done it? You trust in Jesus. Problem solved, right? Alleviate your fears. Okay, challenging stuff. Are cessationists guilty of the blasphemy? against the Holy Spirit. What do I mean by that? Cessationists are people who believe that the the active work of the Holy Spirit is, well, it's not over, but in the sense of signs and wonders and gifts of the Spirit, that that has ceased in the church. So ceased cessationists. There's no more, you know, gifts that are taking place on a regular basis in the church. That, that would be their position. And they are sometimes accused by continuationists, those who believe the, the gifts have continued, of having committed the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And I just want to be like, Slow your roll, continuationists. Like, I'm, I believe in the work of the Holy Spirit right now, but I'm, I'm questioning how much he's working in your brain right now because, like, this is, you are, it's so scary to me to think, I'm going to say, okay, let me just back up. So you hear a report of some church somewhere else, and they do something that you feel is weird, and you say, I don't think that's the work of the Spirit, man. I'm wondering if it might even be the work of Satan. Is that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit to the point of losing your salvation and, and, you know, I write you off? I don't think so. 
And I don't think we have any good reason to think so. I think we need to slow down. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a rejection of Jesus, not just a thing that the Holy Spirit did that you got confused about. It's a rejection of the gospel, but to the next level. Way next level. So I think, stop it, is my encouragement. You can wrongly say, I think that thing is demonic, without committing the unforgivable sin. How do I know this? Well, there are cessationists who have said, that's demonic, who later became continuationists. And I don't think God's messing with them. He's like, ha, 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 I'm making you think of it, but I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you on judgment. I don't think that's what's happening. I think that, yeah, we need to slow down. Now, on the same side, continuationists are sometimes accused of committing the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So that's my last question. Are continuationists committing the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Because they'll say, well, you're calling the work of Satan the work of God. And what you think is the work of the Spirit in your church and in your life is really the, the work of other spirits or of Satan. And you're calling it the work of God. So you've committed the unforgivable sin. You've like reversed it. You're not calling the work of God the work of Satan. You're calling the work of Satan the work of God, which is like the other side of the coin, the inverted image of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Um, so then the conclusion would be, well, they're lost forever. They're lost forever. But one person who comes out of a group that, let's say the group is weird, and they're doing all kinds of weird spiritual stuff that even is demonic but they come out and they get saved. Well, there's the evidence that they haven't done this thing. Um, plus, I'm opposed to saying that even if something is not the work of the Holy Spirit, it doesn't automatically mean it's demonic or satanic. Not, it could just be you just thought you were hearing from God and it was just your brain. It was just you hoping for things and not knowing the difference. And I think that's happened to plenty of people. And I don't think you need to think, oh, I've lost my salvation. I don't think that's the case. Um, so the rhetoric between cessationists and continuationists needs to dial down. It's, it's, dare I say, I think it's arrogant to throw those kinds of accusations around um, to people that are within the body of Christ. So let me, let me wind this all up and give you guys some application for this stuff. A bad application is this. You walk around, don't apply it this way, right? You walk around thinking, I have to figure out who has and who hasn't committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, right? You, and you pick somebody, like... Don't do this. Don't do this. Uh, we really need to take a posture of hope towards people. I would have thought, if you were in the first century, you would have thought Paul totally must have committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Look at this insane guy. Like, obviously he has. Remember James, who was there saying Jesus was crazy, then he's a leader of the church. Yeah. Hebrews 7.25, it tells us this. Therefore, he's able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Anybody can be saved. And we shouldn't be trying to think who we can check off the list. Romans 10, 13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And again, this fits with the idea of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit being an, a thing where you'll never repent because you won't call upon the Lord, right? But we still have that attitude of whoever calls. I'd rather invite someone who won't than uh, not invite someone who might. So what is the proper application? I'm not trying to go find out who's committed this. The proper application, I think, which is very sober, is beware rejecting what you know. There's a point of no return. That's the application. The work the Holy Spirit's doing in our lives, we need to all listen and not be in fear of losing our salvation. We just need to be aware that there's these degrees of harm that happen to us when we reject what God's telling us and showing us and revealing to us through his word, uh, through the Holy Spirit. Don't wait on responding to God. Do it, do it right away because there is such a thing as the extreme ultimate rejection. So many people... They don't say, I refuse Christ, period, end of story. They say, uh, just not yet, not yet, not yet. And they say not yet till they die. And their not yet gets stronger and stronger and stronger because it hardens the heart. So I don't wait, don't wait. It's utter folly. But there are examples in scripture of people that were far gone who came to grace. Um, uh, Paul, um, the churches in Revelation. I mean, listen to how messed up some of these churches are in the letters to the churches. And Jesus is like still has hope for them. and the, the branch is still out to them. And so I think, yeah, I think that we should um, have confidence in the grace of Christ, have confidence in our trust in Christ, always be appealing with the gospel of Christ and worry about the danger of this thing. But don't try to identify who has or who hasn't. Um, that is unwise. So psychologically or pastorally, um, if you still can't shake the, the fear of this sin for some reason, you just can't shake it. Like it's just an irrational fear you have. 
I just need, I need you to say, I trust in Christ. That's the end of this discussion. And that's it. And that's the full story there. Yeah. So let's pray. Um, Father, we thank you for the truth of Christ that's been revealed to us. And in each of us, in each of our lives, we've received a different amount of light, so to speak, amount of revelation, exposure to the truth of God. Thank you for that. Whatever you're showing us now, we, we pray we could have hearts to respond and be good soil, that we would listen, that we would learn, that we would change. We'd still be willing to change even now and transform according to uh, the things that you're revealing to us. And we pray, God, um, we pray that we would have also a sober realization. In fact, we pray, especially for those who are listening who are not saved and they've heard the gospel over and over again. They have interest in it to some degree. Maybe they're listening to this right now. We, we lift up those who will listen to this message. We pray for them that they would not wait another moment, but they would fully respond to the wonderful gospel of the grace of Christ because hardening hearts has a cost. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.